This afternoon, brothers and sisters, congregation of the Lord Jesus Christ, we speak about a topic that is very important and very beautiful and also very practical. I'm sure the children here know all about it because sometimes children can fight about something. It can happen even during Canada Day weekend. You fight about something and then feelings are hurt and then one or perhaps both of you have to ask forgiveness. Maybe mom told you, you go and ask forgiveness. And that is good because forgiveness opens the way up to love one another again. And then you also need to learn to ask forgiveness from the Lord. That is what the psalm is about. I'm sure this is also practical for our guests from the anchor camp. I'm sure in the, in the anchor homes sometimes there is some, I wouldn't call it fighting, but I think perhaps you can have words with one another sometimes, and then feelings are hurt, people are angry, and then we need to ask forgiveness from each other, from the Lord. It's also practical for a man and, and, and wife. Sometimes it doesn't go well. Sometimes there is tension in the air because the one has said something that hurt the other or done something. And the tension won't go away until you have asked forgiveness from each other and from the Lord. So this is very important, it's very practical. And it is very beautiful because there is nothing more joyful than a restored relationship. And by the grace of God, this is possible. He makes that possible in the life of sinners like us. So, this afternoon we are going to listen to a psalm, Psalm 32, that speaks about the blessing of being forgiven. Blessed are the forgiven. That is the short summary and we will look at the character, what is it all about, and then secondly, the way to receive the blessing, how do you receive it, and thirdly, how can we be sure that we receive it. So first of all, what is this forgiveness that David speaks about in Psalm 32? Now, just looking at the first word there is important. He says, blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. I'm sure you have heard this before, that the minister explains the word blessing or blessed. And we need to keep in mind that to be blessed is more than to be happy or to be lucky. We hear the word a lot also in the world around us. You hear it on TV. Uh, I remember a businessman the other day, he was interviewed and he said, yeah, my company has really been blessed uh, because, I think he said, was because of the Canadian dollar and the exchange rate. So he, he said, yeah, we've been blessed with that. I'm not sure that he said it because he was a Christian or because he thought that was the Lord's work. I think many people have started to use the word blessed or blessing in a very general way. But we as Christians have a deeper understanding, something much more fulfilling. Because when we think, when we use the word blessed, we say that 
the, 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 the good things that we experience did not come to us by chance. I was not just lucky, but it is because God is showing his goodness to us. Blessing, when we use that word, it assumes that the relationship between us and God is good because of God's mercy and grace. And we, we, we express our desire that we will walk in God's ways and that we will continue to experience his blessing. So that's the word blessed. Now, who are blessed? Psalm 32 says, Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. So you see that there are three words here that are used to describe sin. Transgression, sin, iniquity. And then there are three words used to describe forgiveness. Transgression is forgiven, sin is covered, and iniquity is not imputed or not counted against you. And those three terms have a rich message. Let's quickly look at each one of them. The first word, transgression. What does transgression mean? Well, if you look at the original and how it is used in the Bible, transgression means that you cross the line. There was a line there drawn by the Lord. You crossed it willfully perhaps not so much willfully, but you crossed it. You are disobedient. The very first sin in the world was a transgression. The Lord had drawn a line, you shall not eat from that tree, but they did it, Adam and Eve. They knew what they were doing. It was premeditated. That's transgression. The second word, sin, whose sin is covered, that word means something like you missed the goal. The Lord had something in mind for you, something good that he was going to give you, and now we missed that goal. You're like a man who aims with a bow and arrow, he shoots, and he misses. And that's what happens to all of us people in this world. We, we think we will find happiness if we do something, even if the Lord has told us otherwise. So we pursue something because we trust that it will give us happiness, And then we miss the boat. We miss the target. So we might think, if I have a lot of money, then I will be truly happy, because that's what everybody believes. Or if I'm beautiful, handsome, then I'll be happy, because everybody will think I'm beautiful and and handsome. And then I miss the boat. I do not find true happiness. We may find something that is temporary and fleeting, but we will lose it. So that is the word sin. You miss the true target of life. There is a third word, iniquity. It's a difficult word, perhaps. You can also translate it as guilt. And it points to the fact that our sins do not just happen automatically without thinking, but that there is a, a source, that they come from a sinful heart. Our sinful heart is the root of the sins we commit in our actions and words. And sometimes we only discover that after we have already done it. Example, 
the way we sometimes gossip about other people. Somehow we all enjoy talking about others' mistakes and weaknesses. Why do we enjoy that? It comes from our sinful heart. And it does, it's not always premeditated. It just happens. You are talking, and then before you know it, you have said something about someone you should not have said. Now, these three words that David uses here, transgression, sin, and iniquity, they paint a bleak picture of what is going on in our life. From our inner motivation to our words and deeds, we are sinners, rebels at heart. We are inclined to be like that, unfortunately. We are inclined to ignore God and to sin against other people. So we often hurt other people, even one another as Christians, even in the same family. And all this causes us to be guilty of transgression, sin, and iniquity. But now there are three words for forgiveness because all this can be forgiven by the grace of God. So the first word is this, transgression can be forgiven. And the word there used means carried away. It's gone. It's no longer there. And of course, we immediately think of the, word of our Lord Je- the work of our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb of God who carries, away, who carries away the sin of the world. As far as east is from west, our sins are gone. What a beautiful way to describe forgiveness. Yes, we transgressed, we crossed the line, but God takes, takes that and he, he carries it away. It's, it's no longer there. The second word, sin, that we missed the goal, what happens to that? Whose sin is covered, David says. It's covered. It's no longer visible. You can't see it anymore. And again, this reminds us of what the Lord Jesus does for us. Because his blood cleanses us from all our sins. His blood covers our sins. And then the third word, iniquity. What, does, what happens to iniquity? It says, the Lord does not impute iniquity. Well, let me put it in more simple English. That, that means the Lord does not count our sin against us. We are guilty, but the Lord cancels our guilt You're no longer guilty. And again, we are reminded of the work of the Lord Jesus Christ. In the New Testament, 2 Corinthians 5, it says, In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. So in Christ, our trespasses, our sins, our iniquity that we really have is not counted against us. How? By believing in Jesus Christ. So these three words taken together paint a realistic picture of our sinfulness, but also a beautiful picture, a fantastic picture of the reality of forgiveness. Yes, it's bad, but thanks to God, it can be completely good again. And that brings real joy to your life. We all know how, how bad it feels when a relationship is restored. And I think most of us also know how good it feels when 
that relationship is restored again. That gives real joy. Now, we may be assured that God always means well and that He always showers His blessings upon us as long as we put our faith in Him and His Son, Jesus Christ. And that brings real joy to our life. Our scripture reading from Luke 7 gives us a a beautiful example of a person who has experienced this and who has found this joy in her life. The Lord Jesus is having lunch with someone, a Pharisee, and a, a lady comes into the room who was known to be a sinner. It doesn't say what kind of sin she was living in. We may speculate. But she was known to be a sinner. So the people think, oh, why is she here? She shouldn't be here in the, in the house of the Pharisee. But this woman just comes into the room, despite her reputation, and she comes to thank the Lord, to show her love to the Lord Jesus Christ. We don't know exactly what had happened to her, but she had repented, and she had found forgiveness of sins, and her relationship with God in heaven had been restored. And that changed her whole life, because previously she knew she was living in sin, and she knew that what she did was against the will of God. So she always felt bad about herself and guilty about the life she was living. And now, thanks to Jesus Christ, I guess she had been listening to his preaching, she had received the message that God forgives sinners by faith. And she was so overjoyed and so thankful that she came into the room to show her thankfulness and her love to the Lord Jesus. And the Lord probably the only one in the room understood it. But he explained it to Simon the Pharisee. I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. For she loved much, you can tell. If you just look at her, how happy she is now, how thankful, you can tell that her sins, which were many, are forgiven. And then the Lord confirmed this to the woman. Beautiful. In front of all those people, whatever they were thinking in their minds, the Lord didn't mind. He said, your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Uh, Wouldn't you be happy if the Lord told you this? Your sins are forgiven. Your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Would you be like that woman, overjoyed to hear this message? Maybe not so much because you don't have many sins. Then you're a bit like Simon the Pharisee. Or maybe you would say, well, of course my sin will will be forgiven. What's the big deal? There is a story, a well-known story about a German poet, Heinrich Heine. When he was on his deathbed, one of his friends asked him if he was concerned about meeting the Lord in heaven. He said, no, I'm not concerned. Of course God will forgive me. That's his job. Well, I think nobody here would say that. But it could happen that sometimes we take God for granted, that we are not surprised anymore that God forgives our sins. 
So I guess that is one, one mistake that people make, also Christians make, that it doesn't surprise us anymore, that it doesn't give us real joy anymore, because of course God forgives. On the other hand, there are also those among us who feel all so bad about themselves that they think that God will never forgive them. That is wrong too, because it's not true. Now, maybe there are sometimes psychological aspects involved. If you always have the feeling that nobody loves you and nobody appreciates you, it will be hard to believe that our Heavenly Father might appreciate and love you. Well, listen then to Psalm 32. It teaches us a third view, the real view to look at things. We need to realize that we are indeed sinners who need to be forgiven, and then we need to believe that our sins are forgiven indeed. And it's only when we believe both these things, we are sinners, we are forgiven, that we experience this blessing that David is talking about. It's only then that we experience this joy and reconciled to God. God is now, he's with me. He wants to bless me. He's on my side every day. So that's a fantastic feeling. You find it a lot when people, for the first time, come to the Christian faith. It's a totally new feeling to them. But it's also a feeling that we should experience time and time again as we reflect on our sins and as we reflect on God's goodness to us. But now the second question. How do we receive this blessing? And now it's time that I should say about something about David, the man who wrote this psalm. Let's read again verse 3 and 4 if you have your Bible open. David says something here about himself that we should take notice of. When I kept silent, my bones grew old through my groaning all the day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was turned into the drought of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you, and I am in iniquity I have not hidden. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. So we see that David, there was a time in his life that he was living in sin. Now he does not say what it was although we are inclined to think that maybe it was the time after he had committed adultery with Bathsheba. You know the story. Instead of confessing his sin and asking forgiveness from the Lord, David did something else. He tried to cover up his actions. He arranged for her husband to go to war and to be put into a position where he would surely be killed. And when that happened, he married her. Sin was covered up. A few people maybe knew about it, but the people didn't know about it. But the Lord knew about it, and we read in 2 Samuel 11 that the Lord was displeased with what David had done. And then life carried on. Everything seemed to be fine, but David had no joy in his life anymore. The way he describes it's, uh, it's telling. 
When I kept silent, my bones grew old. So he was, he was a strong man, but he felt spent, tired. He didn't have energy. He says, day and night your hand was heavy upon me. He was groaning in his spirit all day long. His vitality was gone. Now, when David says that he was silent, it means that he didn't speak to the Lord. That does not mean that he never prayed anymore. Of course, he was the king of the nation. So he would have participated in official worship services with the people of God. He might even let, have led the people in prayer on official occasions. And maybe at home, around the supper table, he might have led his, his family in prayer. Keep that in mind. A person can be living in sin and still keep up the appearances. Still pray as he always did before. That is how we sometimes hear these amazing things about a minister, for example, who is caught living in sin. He's been living in that sin for years. And you wonder, how on earth was this possible? Just the, the other day I heard him preach a wonderful sermon. And he was living in sin all the, at the same time. Yeah, let's not be surprised. We are capable of doing this. We are all capable of living in sin and keeping up appearances at the same time. Now, if God is not gracious to us, he will leave us alone. And that guilty feeling will disappear. But if God is gracious and merciful to us, he will pull us out of that situation. And that is what he did with David. The Lord was at work in David's heart. As David says, the Lord's, for day and night your hand was heavy upon me. So what he had done with Bathsheba and what he had done to her husband bothered him immensely. He felt true remorse. He felt guilty. That is how the Lord was working in David's life. And that is how the Lord can be at work in our lives. When we've done something that is not good, sinful, and we haven't asked forgiveness, that guilty feeling is a work of the Holy Spirit to feel true remorse. And then when the Lord sent the prophet Nathan to confront David with his sin, David was ready to confess. He didn't have to think twice. He said, yes, I have sinned against the Lord, 2 Samuel 12. And then the Lord forgave him. So we learned something important this afternoon, brothers and sisters, about the way we received forgiveness of sin. How do we receive it? It's an important question. Because I think that David was not the only one who struggled with this feeling that the Lord was far away from him. And he is not the only one who struggled with the feeling, I don't have joy in my life anymore. So what was needed? If you look at what happened to David, two things. Both start with a C. Contrition and confession. So first, he needed to have contrition. Contrition, that is a feeling of remorse. You feel guilty. Like the Heidelberg Catechism says in Lord's Day 33, 
It is to grieve with heartfelt sorrow that we have offended God by our sin. That's contrition. Contrition is not the same as self-pity, by the way. Almost every sinner feels sorry for himself if he is confronted with the results of a sinful lifestyle. That's not contrition. For example, when a man has an affair with another woman, and then maybe his wife finds out, and she walks out of the house, she takes the children along, all of a sudden this man sees what he has done, and he's going to feel sorry for himself, because he sees, oh, I might be losing everything that I ever had. So that man could run to his pastor or to his elders weeping and say, please, brothers, you must help me to put my marriage back. I feel so bad. Those tears could be a sign of true remorse. It could also just be a sign of self-pity. It's often hard to tell. You will only be able to tell over time. But self-pity is not the same as true remorse. Self-pity is merely the fear of, being, of having to face the consequences of your actions. If it's only self-pity, then there is no real repentance, and as soon as things are patched up again, wife and children are back in the home, the man returns to his former lifestyle. But if there is true contrition, the man feels remorse because he has hurt many people, his wife, his children, the Lord, he has offended the Lord. And if a man feels true contrition, he will repent and receive forgiveness and change his life. That's what David did, thanks to the work of the Lord in his life. David had committed some horrible sins. Think of it, adultery and murder. But thankfully, the Spirit of God had worked in his heart a spirit of true remorse. That's the first thing he did. And the second thing, confession. He didn't just feel it in his heart, he also said it out loud. He confessed his sin. And notice that again David describes this in three words, or three expressions. That's an interesting aspect of this psalm, by the way. That that's a poetic device that he uses. He often says something in, in three three different expressions. So we again see that in verse 5. I acknowledged my sin to you. I did not hide my iniquity. And I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. All this is summarized in the last line of verse 2, where David says, Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. That's words to think about, worth thinking about. Blessed is the man in whose spirit there is no deceit. That means that you do not hide anything. You do not pretend to be holy while at the same time you're living in sin. But you confess your sin, you acknowledge them, you bring them to God, and you ask forgiveness if you have hurt somebody. That is a man who has a spirit of no deceit. It's not a perfect man. It's a sinner. But a sinner who does not try to deceive others, who does not try to hide his sinfulness. 
he feels bad about it, and he confesses his sins. And as you know, our natural reaction is always to deny our wrongdoing, or at least to try to minimize it. We often see examples of this when you read a newspaper about stuff that people have done to other people. The other day I read something in the newspaper about football players who had raped a girl. It was a kind of a gang rape many years ago. And it came in the news, and then the coach of those guys had said, yeah, okay, that was not good. But you know, my guys, I know them, they are basically good guys. They just made a bad decision at that moment. You see how we try to minimize sin? Now, the lady who had been raped did not forget. She was extremely hurt, not just by that action, but even more so by the way people talked about it. Uh, bad decision. And now, after 20 years, a meeting was arranged between her and the coach who had spoken these words. And finally, the coach said, I understand what you have been going through. I apologize. And then she was able to put everything behind her and move on. So often we minimize the effect of our sins on other people, and it means that we fail to understand the seriousness of our sins. And we are masters in doing this. Another example. Someone has said or done something to you that was really hurting, sinful. The person should not have said that to you. And then when the person then realizes that he needs to apologize, he or she might say, oh, I'm sorry if I offended you. No, that's not an apology, because there is an if there. I'm sorry if I have offended you. No, what is needed is that the person would say, I realize I have offended you. I feel so bad about it. Please forgive me. That would be a confession of sin. Or perhaps we do something that is wrong or we say a word that we shouldn't have said and then when we see that the other person is hurt, then we say, oh, you must have misunderstood me. That's not what I meant. Or perhaps you say, well, yes, I should not have said it. I made a mistake. But you need to understand where I'm coming from. You need to understand my context. All these things are ways of trying to dodge the, the responsibility for our sins. And what David is teaching here, what David is teaching us in Psalm 23, is that forgiveness is received in the way of true contrition, feeling guilty, feeling true remorse, and true confession. And true confession is that you own up to your sins, that you acknowledge them and ask forgiveness. That's what David did. I acknowledged my sin to you. And my iniquity I have not hidden. I said I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And then the Lord forgave the iniquity of his sins. Brothers and sisters, why is it that people, also Christian people, fall into the same sin, even though they had admitted their mistake, 
sometimes even under tears, it's because there was no real remorse and no real, no true confession. And at bottom, I guess it's a, the problem that deep down in our hearts we are proud people and we are too proud to admit that we have failed. Now, may the Lord be gracious to all of us and may His Spirit work in our hearts so that we learn to feel true remorse and that we truly confess our sins because that is what brings healing by the grace of God. Now, there is one last question that we need to answer. How can we be sure that we really will receive forgiveness of sins? Psalm 32 does this in an interesting way. It describes the sins. It describes how the Lord guided David to confess his sin. And then there is this very simple statement at the end of verse 5. And you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's all. There's no explanation. It doesn't need to be explained because that's the character of God. And David had experienced this himself after he had committed those ugly sins with Bathsheba and and her husband. When he had come to the point that he was able to confess his sins, what do you read in 2 Samuel 12? As soon as David says, I I have sinned against the Lord, the prophet Nathan says, the Lord has forgiven your sins. You shall not die. The forgiveness of sins was immediate. Now, that didn't mean that there were no consequences. And we should keep that in mind, too. There were consequences for David's family life. Because he had been adulterous, yes, and because he had, been, uh, he, he had used the sword against someone, there was going to be serious results in his family life and in his line of descendants. But David himself was forgiven. And the same will apply to us. If we sin, if I go and sleep with another woman, yeah, the Lord may forgive that if I confess truly. But there will be damage to my marriage and to my family. But this is really a a wonderful gift of the Lord that when a sinner comes to him asking forgiveness wholeheartedly, no questions, no grudge, the Lord says, your sins are forgiven, you will not die. And this is how the Lord had revealed himself to his people even from the beginning. Exodus 34 He said to Moses, This is who I am. The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin. Those three words again. But who will by no means clear the guilty. That's what we find in so many places in the Old Testament. Every time when we celebrate Lord's Supper, we hear these words from Psalm 103, that he does our sins away from us as far as east is from west. This morning I mentioned Psalm 30, another psalm of David. The Lord's anger is but for a moment, but his favor is a lifetime, for a lifetime. 
And what this teaches us, brothers and sisters, is that our sins are forgiven by God, not on the basis of something we did to make things right. David did nothing to make it right. He couldn't have done much anyway because the other man was dead. The only thing God asked of him is that he confess his sins without trying to hide anything, a spirit of no deceit. So that is what we should learn then as well. We have a gracious, a merciful God. His anger is there for a moment, but when we ask forgiveness, we experience his favor for a lifetime because that is the kind of God we have. And we see this magnificently displayed in the person and the work of the Son of God, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. The Son of God who came to earth to be man, to be one of us, to take our guilt upon himself. That is why the Lord can forgive it and why it's still justice. It was not because we were less sinful or more holy than others. God justifies the ungodly, the Bible teaches us, through faith in Christ Jesus. So, what should we then do? If this is who we are, and if God expects us to be honest with him, feel contrition, confess our sins, and trust that he will forgive, what should we then do? Well, David draws the conclusion in verse 6. For this cause, everyone who is godly shall pray to you in a time when you may be found. Surely, in a flood of great waters, they shall not come near to him. You are my hiding place. You shall preserve me from trouble. You shall surround me with songs of deliverance. That's the songs that we are singing here as Congregation of Christ. Songs of deliverance. We sing it to one another. Our sins have been forgiven because of Jesus Christ. So let's run to him, each one of us, our Lord and Savior, so that we may indeed experience this joy of forgiveness and reconciliation with God, that we may come in his presence without any fear. Yes, we will feel ashamed because of our sins, but we will still go into his presence knowing that he will accept us because of Jesus Christ, our Savior. So for that reason, it is fitting that David ends the psalm with a doxology. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. May you experience that every day of your life. Amen.